The Future by Stefan Molyneux, Chapter 8. The meetings were rarely serious, not light-hearted or frivolous, but not grim either. This was an exception. Alice's father, David, was a tall man with side-swept thinning sandy hair, an air of brisk decisiveness and a forceful momentum of energy that pulled others in his wake like barely prepared water skiers. To me, this is not negotiable, he said to the assembled faces around the black conference table. I know that it was my daughter, and I get that makes me look less objective, but I'm approaching this from a totally moral UPB perspective. If people want to stay the hell out of our society, that's up to them. Free will, no problem. But, at least according to my daughter and Emily, these were children out there. Teenagers, sure, but not yet adults. And they don't have any choice in the situation. And the choices their parents are making will keep them out of the sieve forever. I mean, can you imagine what kind of scans these kids would have? Dark spots and trauma all over the place. Black holes. No one will insure them. No one will enforce their contracts. No one will even rent to them or sell them anything. They'll stay ostracized. Am I wrong? Todd, a slightly portly man of 130, with a mildly irritating habit of clasping his fingertips together and speaking softly over the laced pink spiderweb of his hands, spoke slowly. My friend, it might not be an NAP violation. Wait, wait, I get that hitting the girls was, and the threatened confinement reported is, but maybe the boy in the chaos of his upbringing thought it was a matter of self-defense. And maybe the girls misinterpreted a strong invitation for some kind of confinement. I'm not saying this is the case, or even close to it, but we don't know for sure. And we certainly haven't had any chance to cross-examine anyone out there. The girls met their outliers, which is startling for all of us. It's why I don't travel beyond the sieve. And they came home a little wiser, but none the worse for wear in any permanent way. Are you suggesting that we go in with military force and grab the kids? David sat heavily in a chair and gazed around the long table. The dozen heads of the major dispute resolution organizations stared back at him, and he could see the curiosity and excitement in their eyes. The situation was a great deal different from their usual days of poring over the minutiae of contractual obligations, looking for escape clauses or enforcement porosity. Alan, an extraordinarily talented young man of only 40, leaned forward and rapped his knuckles softly on the flawless surface of the obsidian table. We've never had anything like this before. Well, maybe the old ones here, but not me for sure. It's like a bunch of wild animals out there, an insurgency of history or something like that. I hate the idea of the kids being mistreated, of course, that goes without saying, but what are we going to do with them if we go in and bribe or bully or... His voice faltered as if he were about to utter an obscenity. You use force to get those kids out, then what? We all know what happens after the age of five or six if the kids have been brutalized before or, or neglected. And what, what did he say about, about witches? An older man coughed, waving his hands. No, <coughs> not witches, switches. It's an ancient custom, six, seven hundred years old, from the deep south in old America. Kids would go and have to pick out a branch that their fathers would beat them with. A bald man exclaimed, Man alive, they were apes back then. A middle-aged woman smiled grimly, Hey, 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 no insulting apes. They're just animals. David drummed his fingertips on the table. Okay. 
big perspective on the problem. Pullback time. Everyone in society is vetted. Everyone who goes astray is corrected, except for this mystery group out there on Smudge Mountain. I'm sure there are more, but that's all we know about. They've never been part of society, and they cannot be ostracized, because clearly they don't like us very much, and they're obviously mistreating the hell out of their children, which creates the usual violence and addiction and promiscuity, and with that promiscuity comes additional babies, all of whom are going to be treated badly, and we have a potential, I hate to use this term, but it's kind of like a social cancer on the edges out there. Their birth rate is probably way higher than ours. This won't be the last time we collide. My daughter and her friend were like a, like a warning. We're going to have to do something. The cataclysms were caused by everyone just kicking the can down the road. His face was dark with passion. We don't do that. Not anymore. Never again. The older woman sighed. Ah, oh, you know we can't fix the older kids. You recognize that, right? Maybe the younger ones... And if they're bonded with their mothers, however twisted that bond might be, then the trauma of separation will probably undo any benefits we try to bring to the situation. The bald man said, It's like people before the cataclysms finding a pocket of slave owners right in their own backyard. Alan replied, Yeah, but back then they would imagine that they would know what to do, but all their answers were just violence. We don't have that disadvantage. There was a silence for a moment around the room as everyone's mental musculature strained the weighty problem. An old man with sleepy eyes said, maybe it's just one family or just a few. We might not even know where they are. Those boys might have been hunting right at the edge of their range. The elderly woman replied, if it's a small genetic sample, then inbreeding might solve our problem. David frowned, flexing his fingers. Come on, people. We can't just cross our fingers and hope that the problem goes away on its own. This isn't how we got to the modern world, how we survived the cataclysms, how we sustained the sieve. He sighed. <sighs> We're just going to have to fast forward our own history with this new clan. Bring them here, teach them peaceful parenting, find a way to accelerate their development. The elderly woman snorted. Oh, come on, David. You can't imagine they've never heard of peaceful parenting. No, they're out there in the middle of who knows where because they want to keep abusing their kids. These boys did seem to know something about us, how we live. Weren't they complaining about our machines and everything? So the adults of the tribe know how we do things. They just want to stay out there so they can bully and beat their own children. We simply cannot let that happen. That's not an option. That can't be on the table. Silence all around. They were only a few generations into peaceful parenting, so they still felt a vestigial urge to avoid problems and defer decisions. David checked his notes and said, So, combined, we have 345 security officers. First thing we need to do is find this clan, count their numbers, get a sense of their mobility and structure and weaponry, of course. They could be Stone Age by this time, if they're still stuck before the cataclysms. They might be underground, they might be on the constant move, it might be very hard to find them, but we have to try, of course. He stood up decisively. Come on. If you or I or any of us were stuck out there as kids picking out our own sticks to be beaten with, wouldn't we want the modern cavalry to ride to our rescue? There was an uneasy silence. David fixed his eyes on each face in turn. What if they had hit one of your children, or even worse, captured one, which they might be planning, for all we know? No. We have to save those kids. We have to fix the situation. We have to make sure this abuse never happens again. 
He smiled grimly. We should be pleased that there are still moral crusades to be had in this perfect world of ours. He leaned forward on the table. Everyone always argued throughout all of history that utopia would be boring. Well, let's prove them wrong, at least this time. Chapter 9 Various high-level meetings were convened among the heads of the DROs, who coordinated with the mapping experts, who themselves sent out a series of drones looking for the clan, as they had become known. The DRO leaders met with the security teams and reminded everyone that violence was absolutely the last resort because it was so economically inefficient, as well as immoral, to initiate the use of force. David in particular, went over the use of force guidelines repeatedly, drilling the assembled security teams on the steps, ticking them off on his fingers. I know, you all know this, but humor me. First, we have contact. Second, negotiation. Third, encirclement. Fourth, disabling clan members. Fifth, self-defense, or in this case, defense on behalf of the children. No one, and I repeat, absolutely no one, is authorized to use force, except in an extremity of self-defense, when all other options have been exhausted. Now, I know that this is an unusual situation, which is why we are providing additional training. First of all, the clan, or clans for all we know, have no friends or relatives in the Civ, so ostracism probably means nothing to them. It seems that they have voluntarily self-ostracized themselves already. We don't yet know how or from where, which means that our most potent weapon for UPB is... Well, impotence at the moment, or at least in this situation. I imagine that they have no desire to participate in the Civ. They are opposed to it on principle. We don't know what kind of weaponry they have, but nothing major has been reported missing from any armory, including the major weapons such as bio-targeting and sky laser controls. All the stuff we use to keep ourselves secure is still secured. They might have old-fashioned guns, what some of you refer to as bang sticks. And of course, going even further back in time, they could have bows and arrows or spears. And I know, I know that sounds ridiculous, but it's nothing to laugh at. They're silent, deadly, hard to track, no heat signatures, of course, and can theoretically pierce your shields. So, first, we make contact. And second, I will go in unarmed to negotiate, although, frankly, I don't think it will go too well. The more primitive the tribe, the more control they want to keep over their children. It's the only way to keep that tribal mindset going. So they're not going to give up their kids, and they're not going to want to reform their culture into anything civilized. So I'm going in more as a fact-finding mission. Don't get me wrong, I hope I can get the information peacefully, but I think we have to be realistic about our chances. It seemed to take forever to find the clan. They obviously knew something about the surveillance techniques available to the Civ, and had become adept at dodging or undermining them. Based on their knowledge of traditional hunter-gatherer tribes, the Deros estimated that the clan probably had at least 20 families. Calorie calculations were put together and larger animals in the area sky-tagged with tracking gems. Deer would stop moving and drones would be sent out, only to find coyotes or wolves eating the carcass. Close-up footage was reviewed to see if any larger portions of meat were missing compared to the consumption rates of the scavengers and predators, but the results were inconclusive. Eventually, 
one deer stopped moving briefly during the day and then began moving in an erratic fashion, even over gullies and canyons. And it was found that the tracking gem had been removed from under the skin and attached to a crow. They're under us, reported David at the third weekly meeting. The bald man said, Is it possible that they have cloaking of some kind? David sighed. Well, anything is possible, of course. That's not a well-framed question. As always, it comes down to the question of whether they are principled or just cunning. If they're principled, they will reject cloaking on philosophical grounds. If they are cunning, they will use whatever comes to hand to maintain their lifestyle. The very old man said, I don't suppose we have anything to bribe them with, other than their own independence, which we won't provide. Bribing is always cheaper than fighting. David shook his head. Ah, the Civ doesn't have anything to offer them. They're kind of our inverse image. Violent culture, no technology, brutalizing children. I certainly wouldn't put it past them. I really do respect their intelligence to have left one or two members behind to mess with our scanning and tracking gems while the rest have moved on to some even more remote location. The elderly woman said, It's been a while since I studied this ancient stuff, but was it not considered at one time that criminals had a habit of returning to the scene of their crime? Some old Russian story, I can't remember. Do we have surveillance on Smudge Mountain where your daughter and her friend were held? David frowned. No, we don't, but that's a great point. Long odds, but worth a try. I'll see it done. The bald man wrinkled his nose and coughed delicately. <clears throat> I hate to say it, but we have to be frank in this kind of situation. There could be hundreds or thousands of children's happiness at stake. David spread his hands. It's an open forum. Speak your mind. Well, I can't help but think that part of keeping the two girls captive was a form of mating display or, or, or a twisted expression of romantic interest. We see this in some of the statist regions. The men there all feel inadequate relative to our own alpha power, so to speak. When they come in contact with civ women, they tend to stretch their physical prowess, usually intimidation or captivity or something like that, classic leveling up. The older woman narrowed her eyes. They are unwilling to become civilized, so they push around women. Not much makes me really angry, but that... David frowned. If I take a couple of steps down the road of this conversation, it would seem that there is a general air of suggestion, not not putting it on anyone in particular, that it might be worth using my daughter and her friend as bait? The bald man's cheeks were red. I, I can take that. It, it was me, and yes, I was wondering if the two boys wanted to provoke a more primitive feminine response with their more primitive masculine behavior. We all know this. I've seen it. Once you come in contact with civ females or males, then the grubby members of your own tribe seem much less appealing. The civ spoils people. That's their opinion about our use of technology. It's probably also true about what happens to their view of their own women. Emily's father, whose name was Gregory, startled everyone by pounding his fist on the table. They had almost forgotten he was there at the end. Technology got us into this. What are you saying? Just use children to lure those painted savages into striking? More technology? Sky lasers? Neon nets? What, time machine necks to accelerate the revolution? Look, this tribe has been out there for generations. Maybe they came from here. Who knows? Leave them the hell alone. David raised his eyebrows. Why do you think that technology got us into this? The girls were hiking, delivered by a sky taxi, guarded by a bot that was taken out by a rock. No, 
said David, raising his voice slightly. That was all you. What? I'm not going to blame you for this. It was so totally unexpected and unpredictable. But don't you blame technology for your free will decision to let the girls travel wherever they wanted. You and your wife were the adults in charge of the children. Again, I'm not blaming you for what happened. I let my daughter travel widely, but you really need to accept responsibility for the choices that you made and not blame technology or, or a rock or a slingshot. Gregory's dark face flashed with anger and shame. I'm not mad at technology. I'm angry with myself for failing my own values. I reject technology and then just handed it over to my daughter like a piece of candy. The old woman said, who knows what is good or bad? Gregory turned on her sharply. Excuse me? Oh, don't give me that. She's violating UPB's stare of uncomprehending horror. I'm talking about what happened on the mountain. She gestured at everyone around the table. The girls are unhurt, and this confinement and violence and bullying gives us the chance to rescue hundreds of children from abuse. She turned to David. I hope you are reminding Alice, and you, Emily, that enormous good will come out of their brief suffering. That this is not all some unending disaster. We are convened here to save those lost children, and we only know they exist because of those two girls. Her eyes narrowed. To put it another way, knowing that they will save hundreds of children from physical and mental torture, would those two brave girls still have chosen to climb that mountain? I think they would. David nodded slowly, curious and unoffended. Wise words, thank you. He raised his head. Even if I were willing to use these girls, my own daughter, as bait, we wouldn't even know where to place them. Having them sit around the waterfall on Smudge Mountain would seem like a rather useless waste of time. The odds of the boys returning are tiny, and even if they did... I'm sure they would just sacrifice themselves for the clan by getting captured and refusing to give up any details. Even if they had any details of the location of the clan, which I wouldn't give them if I ran it. The bald man nodded soberly. True, true, but we could get a lot of information just from scanning them. Health, of course, and most importantly, mental development, presence of empathy, possibility of evolution, you know. David said, I'm pretty sure that we don't need a scan to figure out their level of empathy and mental development. As for the possibility of evolution, well, that's the one knot that we just can't unravel, as we all well know. Maybe if they were younger, five and under, we could work with neuroplasticity to bring them along, but then they wouldn't have been much of a danger to Alice and Emily. It could be the kind of proof we need to authorize more aggressive action. I'm referring to scans. David leaned forward. Don't you trust me, Lou? The man's cheeks grew redder. What what do you mean? David's voice was low. My daughter is held hostage on a mountaintop. She, she tells me what happened. I'm telling you what happened. And we all know what that means regarding empathy and development. There is a straight line between the events, my daughter telling me, and me telling you. Either the events didn't happen, my daughter lied, or I am lying, or some combination. Do you really need a scan? Lou held his gaze and shrugged. I have no problem with your position. I would feel the same way in your mucklucks. But but we can't trot you out to get more general cooperation across the sieve every time we need support for this. Everyone understands the scans, though. They are more objective, less flavored, less personal. 
David paused. You're right. Thank you. The elderly woman said, Just put a shield on your daughter. Nothing can touch her. David grimaced. That's pretty simplistic. She could still be roped, taken underground, held underwater. Arrows might get through. I don't know. My mind doesn't exactly work that way. But just because she would be immune to rocks and lasers and bios doesn't mean that she can't be harmed or scared for that matter. The ancient man said, How are the girls doing in the aftermath of this? I guess I've always been curious how kids raised peacefully would deal with trauma. The two fathers exchanged knowing looks. David sighed. I'm not sure you want to know. Chapter 10 Violence creates a strange intimacy. Violence strips away the personality to the essential animal, which few people ever get to see outside of sex or panic. Alice was drawn to return to Smudge Mountain. This is a kind of mastery over violence that sometimes compels victims to revisit the scene of the crime. Alice listened with rapt attention, while pretending to be distracted by her hologloves, as her father reported to her mother the difficulties they had finding the clan. She thought often of the boys, particularly the elder one. It was not a sickness, it was not obsessive, but her primitive brain had been activated to the presence of danger, of predators, and it circled this new knowledge like a shark spirals a wounded fish. One night, she realized that she would have to... (laughs) She laughed silently. Have to... Both my parents would roll their eyes at me giving up my free will so easily, or under the memory of such compulsion, whatever. She realized that she would have to return to the mountain, to the scene of the crime, so talked about in the sieve. She used the surveillance globe to examine it and saw the giant clusters of eyes and ears as the VR people visited the site of such a violation. However, that trailed off over time as the drama of the confinement and the resulting search began to fade from people's minds. The news also kept reminding people of the rarity of such an attack on children. I could always go incognito. Privacy is so important to us, so no one would see me. But how to get there? Privacy is the sieve she had often been told. The right to remain free from view, personal to your own life, was the essence of civilization. Of course, this didn't always apply to children who had more rights and privileges than any prior civilization. In other words, this was the first civilization. But Alice did generally agree to inform her parents where she was going. She thought long and hard about disobeying her parents. It felt... Surreal, almost supernatural. There was a kind of implicit contract between them. She was treated well, and she treated them well. They didn't lie to her, she didn't lie to them. They kept their word. She had never really thought about disobeying them before, because they weren't authorities in that sense. They were in charge. They didn't control or bully her. 
they were just reasonably consistent. And when she was very young, the memory came flooding back as she touched her foot to the boundaries of obedience. She had broken a promise to her father about candy. He had nodded from his high perch of size and wisdom. When she was very little, Alice had looked up at him, not knowing the difference between the top of his head and the floating clouds, and thought that the clouds were a kind of crown that wrapped around his mind like a hazy chandelier. So, we don't need to keep our word anymore, is that it? He asked gently. No! Do you remember that I had promised to take you swimming tomorrow? She nodded. Do you like swimming? Not. You feel happy about swimming tomorrow? Not. If I break my promise and we don't go swimming, you'll be sad? Not. And will you feel as happy the next time I promise you something good? She shook her head. Her father took her hand. It's totally fine that you took the candy. It's natural. But I won't have higher standards than you. That would mean I will lose just about every time. You really want me to keep my word when I make a promise to you, right? Not. That's how I feel about your promises. Either we both keep our promises, or we don't have to. Which do you want? Alice remembered a tear trickling down her cheek. Let's keep them. Her father smiled. I agree. Just remember that there is an animal inside of you, and an animal inside of me. And that animal just wants stuff, and doesn't really care about truth or promises or goodness or anything like that. And it's part of us. We shouldn't just throw it out, because that would be like throwing out a finger or a toe. She had smiled. We are mammals, you know that. But we are also angels, and that is the most real part of us. The angels in us really care about truth and goodness and promises, and are willing to give up candy for the sake of trust. And also because trust will get you more candy than breaking your promises. If you break your promise and eat candy, we can't have it in the house. So you won't get any at all. If you keep your word and don't eat candy when you say you won't, we can have it in the house. So you get some. Does that make sense? Nod. Hug. Candy. Swimming. Laughter. Joy. But I never made him a promise, them a promise, to never go back to the mountain. As she said the words in her mind, they faltered and faded away, their legitimacy collapsing under the weight of the certain knowledge that breaking an implicit promise without explicit communication was just about the worst thing. She had to go, but she didn't want to disobey. And it was strange that the word disobey had only really emerged in her mind since that night on the mountain. She had never really thought of obeying her parents or her society, or any adult for that matter. She did what she preferred other people to do. She kept her word and didn't yell at people, or it was hard to even imagine hit them. It would be horrible to be on the receiving end of these things, so why would she do them? Alice had heard stories of other children, oh, babies, very rare, and no one close to her, of course, who had failed their scans, and society had leapt into action. One kid she had met on her travels in a no-bot neighborhood had whispered 
about what happened when her scan had been only on the border of empathy. The scans were up in the air, and three doctors were present, gesturing and rotating the three-dimensional image. The head doctor said to her parents, This is your baby's brain, thanks for the scan. And as you can see, this part of the brain, which is supposed to be where the empathy is developing, is quite dark. It's like a cave. If we spin it here and here, we can see that the brain development is just not happening as it should. And this is a certain path to a dangerous and and, and probably destructive adulthood. As you know, children are kind of grow and release creatures. You have total privacy to raise your child as you see fit. But of course, everyone in society is going to have to live with the products of your parenting. And you have one child kind of on the edge and another that is not developing empathy in any meaningful way at all. Now, we are a wealthy society, as you know, but children without empathy grow into adults that cost about five to ten times more than they ever produce. And who is responsible for that expense? Certainly not your baby himself, of course. It is you, his parents, and us as the more generalized society that is responsible for this dark cave in the brain where your baby's heart should be, so to speak. Whatever is happening in your home is crippling your baby's ability to grow mirror neurons, the parts of the brain that allow us to step into somebody else's shoes and feel what they feel. As you know, the sieve is based on empathy, and your baby won't be insurable if this continues. What that means, I'm sure you've reviewed the contracts in detail, but we do have to spell it out for legal reasons. What that means is that when your baby grows up and does something destructive, and you will notice that here we are saying not if but when, you will be responsible for the full costs and restitution of that destruction. When your child assaults another child, you will be fully responsible. When your child steals, you will be fully responsible. If your child becomes a thief, a rapist, or a murderer, you will be held fully responsible. If your child becomes an addict, or promiscuous, or sickly, you will pay the bills. Because you are responsible for your child's development. If you raise a child without empathy, you will be held responsible for that child's crimes all the way through his adulthood. I'm sure that you don't want to live with that kind of tension. That you could lose all your savings, your capacity to enter into contracts, and be utterly ghosted by society when he does something impulsive and destructive. That is the bad news. The good news is that your baby is only, yeah, five months old. We see here that he missed his scan at six weeks, which really undermines your contract rating, by the way, which is why your rent went up 25%. But you have brought him in now, which is great. He is young enough that this can be resolved almost completely. You need to tell me, us, what is going on in the home that is failing your child. I'm guessing it's more to do with neglect than physical or verbal abuse, since the hippocampus is not enlarged. Is there something preventing you from holding and cuddling your baby? What about breastfeeding and maintaining eye contact and mirroring emotions? You know, all of these things you maintained your contract rating by taking parenting classes five years ago, it seems, with a slight refresher last year. So, what's going on? We really need to help. Don't feel bad. Something is happening that is unexpected and largely unknown, and we are absolutely here to help you solve this problem. There were reports of stony stares and curt replies and angry protestations of perfect parenting. 
Complaints were made that the scan was defective, the children were fine, the doctors were colluding, they just made money by pretending children were broken, the DRO was corrupt, double-dealing, conflict of interest, hatred of the parents. For some reason, the full litany of paranoid justifications ran through the room. You've no proof of any of this, the head doctor replied, and your contract with us clearly spells out that we have the right to subject you to a non-invasive and perfectly safe scan at our own discretion. Just so you know, this has happened, what, what, five times over the last year? It's incredibly rare, which is one of the reasons why you chose us as your DRO. We don't take this decision lightly, and I, for one, hate to force it on you, but oh, I really don't know how to say this because it won't land well for you at all, given your state of mind. But you are not being rational at the moment, and we don't know why. We reviewed your history, and your parents were very good. You had solid empathy scans at six weeks, three months, six months, one year, five years, all the way to adulthood. You haven't come in for your checkups for the last oh, two years, but you paid the penalties, and that's fine, I guess. But your contract clearly states that while your children are your responsibility, they don't belong to you because they grow up to have massive effects on society as a whole. We didn't become a peaceful society without enforcing peaceful parenting. That is the big difference between us and everything that came before, of course. Sorry, I'm lecturing. You will both need to submit to scans. Other consequences will accrue as well. We cannot return your children to your home under the current circumstances because their lack of empathy, if it continues, will bounce back on us all. As you know, we keep our rates so low because crime is almost non-existent. We can't allow for the development of a criminal mind for moral as well as practical economic reasons. Protests, threats, abuse, attempted violence, security was called, the parents were sedated, and the scans were done. Alice knew something of the terrible treatment of children in the past. She had heard of societies pathologically obsessed with various bigotries such as racism, sexism, homophobia, but which didn't even have a word or a concept of childism. This was truly incomprehensible, as incomprehensible as the owning of slaves was to those 500 years ago, she imagined. Everything starts in the home. It was written and discussed continually. It was a central theme of all of the books and shows she consumed as a child. It was a constant topic of conversation among adults and between adults and children. Think of a journey from here to Alpha Centauri, her uncle had once said to her, taking a stylus and rotating it slightly. If you change the starting position by a tiny bit, you can end up missing it by an entire light year. Society was an inverted pyramid. Everything broad that happened to adults started as a tiny point in infancy. Alice was trained to view people as leaves on a tree. The twigs and branches and trunk and roots were their entire history. They were just the effect of everything that had happened before, from the seed onwards. Her father had said, We think we're judging people when we are really judging how they were parented. The parents, really. In the distant, nightmarish past, children had been regularly beaten. They called it 
spanking, which she was not familiar with, but it was explained to her that the word existed because people didn't like to say the word beating. Children were assaulted, neglected, malnourished, confined in terrifying child prisons where they were indoctrinated to hate themselves and each other. They had no practical rights, no weight in society, no say in how they lived. And no one and nothing was looking out for them, making sure that they were doing well, developing properly. Her uncle had whispered of this one night when he came to check in on a sleepover, and Alice was the only girl awake. And they fell into an easy, starlit conversation. Back then it was so bizarre. You've heard of the age of slavery, which was basically every society across the world throughout all of history, over a hundred thousand years, until the old British ended it. Well, the slaves were held in general contempt. They were beaten in public and openly humiliated, and could be killed with impunity, all sorts of terrible stuff. Societies back then treated their slaves exactly as they described the slaves. There wasn't this totally weird contradiction or opposition between how they talked about the slaves and how they treated them. Slaves were viewed as expensive, disposable scum, and they were treated exactly that way. But that wasn't how it was with children. That's the strangest thing. There was a singer named after some city in ancient Texas, and she had a song. I'm sure you can still hear it in the archives somewhere, about how children are the future, they need to be treated well and loved and respected and encouraged, all the good stuff that we would mostly agree with now in the sieve. But she treated her own children terribly. Her daughter basically committed suicide. She was married to some violent guy. It was about as bad a situation as you can imagine. He scoffed. (laughs) Imagine that in the age of slavery. Imagine that there was endless public and private sentimentality about how slaves were the future, they were just wonderful, they needed to be praised and encouraged and loved and respected. But they were regularly beaten and starved and killed. That would be an insane society. Mentally damaged, so contradictory it almost defies imagination. Someone having those opinions now that you must beat and destroy what you love and praise would be subjected to about a million scans looking for whatever brain damage would produce such unbelievably contradictory perspectives. He sighed. And this is the strange thing, the strangest thing probably in all of human history. Even in the days of slavery, slaves had their champions, who said slavery was evil and should be ended, that the slaves were human beings worthy of self-ownership, that sort of stuff, particularly after Christ. But in the old days, about children, it wasn't even a debate. Occasionally, some people would point out this contradiction, but they were either ignored or destroyed. This massive, unbelievable, galaxy-wide contradiction between the publicly stated respect and love for children and the private exploitation and destruction of children, it was completely ignored, like it didn't even exist. The only way you knew it did exist in people's minds was their fear and hatred of anyone who came along and pointed it out. And even the science was clear, even back then. Child abuse was like planting a bomb in the brain that went off forever. Child abuse took an average of 20 years off people's lifespans. It was a dose-dependent trigger for promiscuity, addiction, criminality, ischemic heart disease, cancer, you name it. 
Big studies had been done. The data was readily available. Spanking was destructive. It didn't produce anything other than short-term compliance and long-term dysfunction. The schools were getting worse and worse. You couldn't even really call them schools. They were just prisons for children. And all of this was known. The statistics were out there. Everything was clear as day. But I guess, I guess, all of the power structures relied upon the destruction of children. And so, as we found out about a hundred years ago, peaceful parenting is the most revolutionary act in human history because raising children well was the end of tyranny. And I guess all the tyrants in history knew that, which is why they tried to destroy anyone who stood up for children. Alice said, I guess the parents were upset themselves and probably didn't want to raise their kids to not fit in with society at all. There was a quote back then that I read once, that it is no measure of mental health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. That's the craziest thing, that everyone knew and everyone talked about it, but nobody connected anything together. Alice had shuddered in the dark under the covers. That night, she had had a nightmare of returning to the world of violence against children. And now, in the present, after being captured and attacked, she knew that she would return to the mountain. Chapter 11 Alice could not figure out the morality of the situation. Normally she would go to her parents, but they were one source of the problem, so to speak. She sat in the little white cubbyhole in front of her window one rainy night, while the white porch light disintegrated into winding glass tears. She stared at the rivulets, letting her mind wander, hoping against hope that somehow the collapsing beams of light would answer her question when they hit the windowsill. I know how to activate the privacy mode of the sky taxi. I've seen my father do it a hundred times. This means lying to him and to mom, and it might all come to nothing. I, I might go back to the mountain and find only bones, empty earth, and a few blackened sticks. But I know Dad can't find this clan, and those boys and I, and Emily, I guess, are united in some way. I might have changed their world. I know that they have changed mine. But what do I want from this? Do I want do I want to rescue them or have them dragged before the sieve and humiliated for their pig ignorance? Do I want to smash their lives as they tried to smash mine? Over and over she thought of the moment when the boys decided to leave, as if the two girls no longer existed. How utterly bizarre. I feel a teeny tiny bit offended that they left, that we ceased to exist for them, mostly because I don't know why. It was like a game we were playing just suddenly ended, because we didn't know the rules and weren't playing whatever they were playing. And it feels, in a very strange and primitive way, that we were somehow married on that mountain. She smiled at that, almost cynically, reshaping the statement in her mind as something melodramatic and ridiculous, because she didn't want to lift the carpet 
and see where the stairs below actually led. Alice toyed with various ideas in her mind until everyone was asleep, and she had broken her word to go to bed hours before. Nothing compelled her to move, and she was quite used to waiting for this kind of compulsion, because if it didn't come, she wouldn't have the resolution to follow through on whatever action was being considered. Until she thought of all the other children of this clan and what their lives would be like, and the image arose within her of an ancient hourglass, filled not with coloured sand, but with tiny red blood cells, the potential for a civilised life pouring from top to bottom as time ticked by, and the children remained brutalised. Something my uncle told me once years ago. He said that, In the distant past, people were incredibly sentimental towards animals and incredibly violent towards children, and people too. Various forms of entertainment showed people being shot and tortured and drowned and hunted, but if someone kicked a dog, everyone lost their minds. The animals were a repository for the sentimentality for the children, he had said, because he had an endless habit of dropping little verbal bombs in her mind, that only went off in a flashbang of illumination weeks or even years later. If I go to the mountain and they are not there, I will have conquered the space. If they are there, I will humiliate them and rescue the toddlers. Using sneak skills she had not utilized in years since the necessary stealth of childhood games, Alice crept Downstairs, packed food and water, eased out of the house. They had no need for locks or alarms, of course. Walked into the woods for about ten minutes, then brought up her father's phone. Entered the incognito mode unavailable on her phone and summoned the sky taxi. As she winged her way through the tapering night rain, Alice thought briefly of getting Emily but it seemed too complicated, and her friend had one of those personalities that always seemed to remind everyone of a younger sibling, even if she was a similar age. Ninety minutes later, Alice's mother awoke from a light, hot-and-cold menopausal doze to see her phone vibrating and dancing across the night table. She looked at the screen, saw that her husband was calling, and instinctively reached across the bed to find his still-sleeping form. What the... She muttered, imagining that he had, once more, left his phone behind somewhere. She blinked at the screen to answer it, choosing text over audio so that her husband could continue sleeping. Her daughter's still shaking, dark face loomed too close on the screen. Mom, they're here, whispered Alice. She switched the view to an enormous flickering fire a short distance away, a group of bodies dancing around it like a swaying, fleshy stonehenge. Her mother's heart immediately began pounding like a beast trying to break its way out of her ribcage. The image of her dead daughter Ruth lying on the ground staring impossibly at her own shoulder blades. There was a sudden gasp and the communication cut out.